Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let's hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds. Not abandoning our own meeting together as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the, drawing, the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Point Loma family. It is so good to be with you all again on this morning and on this day as we continue to reflect upon the life and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So in 1964, just five months after Dr. King gave the dream speech, and the same year that Dr. King spoke here in Golden Gem when this was Cal Western University, Dr. King released a book which was entitled, Why We Can't Wait. Now this book was designed to be an apologetic or defense to both the critic and the curious, chronicling the reasons behind the momentous recent and ongoing events of what Dr. King called the Third American Revolution. He also called it, and it was also known as, the Civil Rights Movement. So Dr. King said this regarding this revolution. He, he said, 300 years of humiliation, abuse, and deprivation cannot be expected to find voice in a whisper. So it was in light of this reality that he argued that three options were possible with regards to the revolution. Number one, he said that the revolution could turn towards violence. But number two, he said that the revolution could fizzle out and give way to the status quo. But his third option was that the revolution could follow a Christian path of loving, nonviolent, direct action. In this book, Why We Can't Wait, the, the heart of Dr. King's argument is found in the middle chapter of the book. It's this little chapter that he wrote called Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Dr. King wrote it when he was in jail in Birmingham in 1963, and he was in, uh, actually in solitary confinement, and he wrote this letter on the edges of newspaper and on toilet paper and whatever he could find. And in this letter, he wrote this letter beginning on Good Friday, 1963, in response to clergy who criticized his presence, his pace, and his practices in Birmingham. In other words, you had clergy who were criticizing him saying, why are you here? You're moving too fast and we don't like what you're doing. So in response to this, Dr. King argued for the biblical and moral righteousness of the movement. And he expressed his desire that his critics, those who were criticizing him, would come to join him in the movement. Dr. King gave a number of arguments for why the work of the movement couldn't wait. But at the end of the day, in this letter, there is one particular argument that stood out. 
Because shortly after the release of the book, Dr. King had one of his most famous sayings, and it was this. He said, we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we will perish together as fools. In other words, for Dr. King, who was living in a time of social upheaval and a time of revolution, for Dr. King, not pursuing the work of the movement would result in fatal consequences. You know, in the book of Hebrews, as we look at the book of Hebrews chapter 10 today, in this book, the author is writing to an audience that is living in their own time of social upheaval and revolution. There are some New Testament scholars who believe that the audience uh, that the author is writing to is a community of Hellenistic Jewish Christians, meaning they are Jewish by their ethnicity and their heritage, but they're Greco-Roman by the culture in which they live. And finally, they are Christian based upon their faith. They're living during a time of Israel's revolution against Rome, a revolution which will soon end in the destruction of Jerusalem and of the Jerusalem temple itself. In other words, they're living in a time of violent revolution. Christians have also just finished enduring a season of persecution at the hands of the Roman Emperor Nero, a persecution which resulted in the martyrdom of the Apostle Paul. And then also, this community itself was no stranger to persecution either. The scriptures let us know that this community had endured ridicule and scorn, or in other words, their version of cancel culture. And they had also endured more than just bad language and words against them. They had endured seizure of their property and even imprisonment because of their witness for Christ. But they had done this willingly. They they had done this standing with those who were being persecuted and also visiting and caring for those who had gone to prison. But now as we come to this letter, they are in danger of drifting away from Christ and from their witness for Christ. Now, scholars believe that this turning away from Christ was was not primarily due to doctrinal or theological differences. It wasn't due to a shifting in their belief stance, but instead it was due to the pressures of the society around them that was leading them to reconsider their direction. There are some scholars who believe that It was their Jewish brethren and sistren who were encouraging them to return to Judaism. But there are others who believe that the pressure was actually coming from their Greco-Roman society, which was pressuring them to conform to the societal values and norms. So in other words, if you think about it, Jewish Christian, Jewish um, believers who are calling them back to Judaism, Greco-Roman society who is calling them back to the societal values and norms, they are being pulled potentially in multiple directions. And so now they face this choice. And this choice is this. Number one, they can return to Judaism, which was a religion and culture which was currently engaged in a violent revolution against the Roman Empire. Or number two, they could conform to Greco-Roman society, thus maintaining the status quo and going on with the way things were. But they had a third option. 
And that third option was to continue to follow the middle way, the way of Christ. So the author of Hebrews encourages them and encourages them to continue to follow this middle way of Christ. So we see that reflected when we see that in verse 23 when he says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And then throughout the rest of the book, we see that the author of Hebrews gives them a number of arguments as to why they should do this. But there's one argument, one argument which is presented in two different ways, which stands out in this passage more than any other argument, and that is this. In verse 23, the author of Hebrews says that they should keep on going, hold fast to the confession of their hope without waving. They say, because he who promised is faithful. From age to age, he who promised is faithful. God will do what God says God is going to do. He who promises faithful. But the other side of this argument is found in verse 25, because at the end of verse 25, he says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, as you see the day approaching. In other words, when you bring together he who promises faithful and as you see the day approaching, essentially their ultimate motivation for continuing to follow the middle way is the second coming of Christ. Christ is going to return. And so he says, essentially, the the author of Hebrews says, look, for those who continue to follow Christ, you'll be rewarded. For those who continue to follow the middle way, you'll be rewarded because he who promised is faithful. But for those who abandon following Christ, they're going to face judgment because the day of Christ's second return is drawing near. So bottom line is that for the audience of the book of Hebrews who are living in a time of social upheaval and revolution, not pursuing the work of the Christian movement, the middle way, the way of Christ, not pursuing this work, can have not just fatal consequences, but eternal consequences. They couldn't wait, in other words, because eternity is at stake. So so that raises a question. If you can't wait, what does it look like to do the work of the movement? What does it look like to do the work of the Christian movement and to continue to follow the way of Christ? You know, y'all ask some great questions as an audience. I'm glad you asked me that question. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk a little bit about that. Because we actually find in verses 24 and 25 a little bit of a clue as to what this actually looks like. You see, when we take those two verses together, these verses tell us a couple of things. Number one, that we should look for ways to, to stimulate or, 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 or in some translation it says to provoke one another. Some translation even says to spur on one another uh, to practice love and good deeds. But the thing is, this can only happen if we draw closer to one another. We need to be able to encourage one another instead of discouraging one another. We need to be able to pull together with one another, one another instead of pulling away from 
each other. In other words, the author of the book of Hebrews is telling his audience that times of crisis and upheaval are not times to drop out, but instead they're times to step in. They're times to renew our commitment both to Christ and to one another. You know, as we look at this, the actions of the early church, the things that the early church did carry holistically for one another, showing hospitality to strangers, caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and rescuing and caring for babies that were abandoned to infanticide. Those actions help to strengthen, not dissolve, but strengthen the church's commitment to Christ and also served as countercultural witness for Christ amongst the societal norms of the day. Dr. King said this about the early church. Dr. King said in those days, the church was not merely a thermometer which recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. But instead, the church was a thermostat which transformed the mores of society. You know, one of my favorite and somewhat more recent examples of this exhortation being put into practice was a woman by the name of Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune. Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune was a woman who was born to former slaves in South Carolina, and she graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 1895 with the intention and the plan of going on to become a missionary. However, when she was denied the opportunity to do missions, Dr. Bethune took a job teaching elementary school girls in Georgia. And there she was inspired by her principal, Lucy Craft Laney, who herself was a daughter of former slaves. And as a result of, of Lucy Craft Laney's inspiration, Dr. Bethune in 1904 moved to Daytona Beach, Florida to start a school. It was a school for African-American girls. And when she moved to Daytona Beach, Florida to start their school, she moved down there with only $1.50 to her name. She actually set up the school in an area that was a junkyard where they used leftover trash to construct some of the desks and some of the chairs for the students who would be coming to this school. So with $1.50 in a junkyard, she started a school for African-American girls. And do you know that she helped build this school into a co-ed university? A university would still exist today, over 100 years later. A university that is called Bethune-Cookman University, which still exists today. But the thing about Dr. Bethune that I like is that her good works didn't stop there. While she was running her school, one of her students became sick. And so she was looking to bring her student to the hospital, but the hospitals in the area refused to admit her student to the hospital because of her race, because she was African-American. As a matter of fact, when they finally did decide to treat her, they placed her outside on a porch, would not allow her to come into the actual hospital, but placed her on, the court, on a porch to recuperate. 
So when Dr. Bethune heard about this, she helped to create another hospital, a hospital which was open to all people, regardless of their race. And this hospital ended up serving a pivotal role in the community during the 1918 influenza pandemic. In other words, when we just went through COVID, they had a similar thing 100 years ago in 1918 called the influenza pandemic. And her hospital was key in serving the community during that time. But her good works didn't stop there. Uh, Dr. Bethune led voter registration and anti-lynching campaigns. She founded an organization for African-American women, which still exists today over 100 years later. Dr. Bethune helped to create and to serve on President Franklin D. Roosevelt's informal black cabinet, which addressed the needs of African-Americans during the Great Depression. And she was appointed by President Harry Truman as the only woman of color at the founding conference of the United Nations. When Dr. Bethune died, when she passed away, one columnist who was writing about her said of her, she gave out faith and hope as if they were pills and as, as if she was some sort of doctor. But speaking of her own motivation, uh, Dr. Bethune wrote this before her death. She said this, she said, I had faith in a loving God. I had faith in myself and I had a desire to serve. Now, all of these good works, starting a university, a school that became a university, starting a hospital, anti-lynching, voter registration, all of these good works came from one woman. One woman who had a Christian college education and one woman who was inspired or, or, or stimulated or provoked by a Christian elementary school principal. That is what provoking one another to love and good works can look like in our society today. So family, let, let me, let me sh just submit this to you. Today, we are living in a time of upheaval. Racial and social and political and economic tensions threaten to pull us apart as a nation and as a church. Violent revolution has emerged as an option for some. And yet there are others who long to return to the status quo. So the question that we face today, Point Loma family, is this. The question is, what will be our response? as our society pulls us in different ways and as the tensions going on in our society pull us in different ways, what will be our response? Will we give in to the violence that is around us? Violence not only of our actions, but violence also of our words and of our heart. Speaking discouraging words to others instead of encouraging words to one another. Will we succumb to the status quo? basically ignoring the cries and the plight of those who are in pain and in need, both around us, but also amongst us, right here on our campus. Maybe will, will we opt out altogether? Just saying, you know what? I'm tired. I'm tired of the endless messages and 
conversations that I keep hearing around campus. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I'm tired of doing the work of, of trying to do work of justice and ministry and caring for others and seeing little result. You, you, you know what? I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of the opposition that I face on a daily basis. I'm tired. Will we just opt out and just say, you know what? I'm, I'm just tired. Or will we make the ultimate decision to recommit ourselves? To recommit ourselves to the Christ who is faithful and to the work of the Christian movement, the work of the way of Christ, this, this middle way. In other words, will we commit ourselves to, or recommit ourselves to look to engage more with one another and not less, to encourage one another with our words and deeds instead of discouraging each other with our words and deeds, and to provoke, to, to stimulate one another towards practicing love and good works which will benefit our entire campus and our entire community. You know, in the Birmingham Civil Rights Campaign, which was 60 years ago this year, all the participants in the Birmingham marches and protests after they had gone through rigorous training and testing were required to commit themselves to the following 10 commandments that you see on the screen. I mean, these are the 10 commandments of the nonviolent movement. Commandment number one, meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. Number two, remember that the nonviolent movement seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. Number three, walk and talk in the manner of love because God is love. Number four, pray daily to be used by God in order that all might be free. Number five, sacrifice your personal wishes in order that all might be free. Number six, observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy. In other words, don't cuss each other out. Number seven, seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. Number eight, refrain from the violence of fist, tongue, or heart. Number nine, strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health. And number 10, follow the directions of the movement. Point Loma, what will we each commit ourselves to? However we choose to respond, let us remember that this admonition from the author of Hebrews lets us know that our decision has eternal consequences. In other words, we can't afford to wait because eternity is at stake. You know, as we are here today, I just want to say to you all, students, if you are really looking forward to an opportunity to, to serve, if, if you feel like God is provoking you and you're, you're, you're searching for where do I serve, how do I do love and good works, what is it that I need to do, I want to encourage you, and you heard about this a little bit earlier, there are opportunities right here on campus. We have opportunities through discipleship ministries. We have opportunities through the campus fair that is taking place, the ministry fair that is taking place on campus today. And so we encourage you to go to Kathleen after you leave and to check out opportunities to be able to serve in love and good deeds or to speak to a chaplain while you are there to figure out where God might be leading you and how God might be provoking you to do the work of the ministry that he has called you to. Amen? Amen. Well, thank you, everyone. You are dismissed. Go in peace.